Welcome to Ragbag's Bonus Bag. My name's Frank Burton, a.k.a. Lazarus Newman. As promised, here's an extract from my new audiobook. The novel is called 100, and you can download the audio version from Bandcamp. The price at this moment in time is set to name your price, so please do name your price. The physical book and its electronic counterparts are available from Amazon. All the details can be found at frankburton.co.uk so as this is ostensibly a music podcast and I'm not playing any music this time I've selected a music themed extract now this should give you a flavour of how the novel works it's a series of interconnected stories and the three stories I'm about to tell are part of a much larger piece there's a hundred of them altogether hence the title 100 This isn't the start of the book, but it's the first time we meet one of the novel's most notable characters, so it should all make sense without me having to explain any more about it. And listen, if you like what you hear, please do tell your friends about it. It would be nice if this could end up being, you know, a phenomenon or whatever. It's not too much to ask, is it? But, you know, seriously. I did put a lot of work into this book, and I really do think it's paid off. I am really, really pleased with how it's turned out, and I do hope that you enjoy it too. So, here we go. There was a rock band called the Susan Killers. The lead singer's name was Defo Trezor. Very little was known about Defo, because he'd never been interviewed. No one knew what he looked like, or even how old he was. When the band performed live, he delivered his vocals whilst encased in a wooden crate. In photo shoots the less reclusive guitarist, bassist and drummer were pictured with the crate alongside them. As their fame and notoriety grew, the image of Defoe's unconventional stage outfit became an unlikely rock icon. After its basic chipboard frame appeared on the cover of a leading music magazine, the band ceremoniously burned this crate live on stage, while Defoe watched through the peephole of a cardboard box. From that point on, Defoe performed from the inside of a different container every night. One night he performed an entire gig from the confines of a filing cabinet. Another night, an upturned skip. For some concerts, the entire band performed within a storage locker. It went without saying that no one knew where Defoe Trezor lived. Considering the amount of money he made, fans would have been surprised although not exactly shocked, to discover Defoe lived in one of Jennifer's smaller apartments. For some reason, his neighbours had failed to detect him either, despite the fact that the band regularly rehearsed in his living room, usually at a highly antisocial volume. As their fame escalated, Defoe grew more and more paranoid that his face would end up being outed. He wondered if it were possible to erase every single photograph he'd ever appeared in. He'd already persuaded his family, after much pleading and a certain amount of bribery, to delete every photo they'd ever taken of him. But there were plenty of shots still in existence, 
There were pictures from his college days, before he became a recluse, most of which his friends had agreed to dispose of. He was confident he'd eventually manage to track every single one of these down. More problematically, he'd appeared in various wedding photos, including one where he'd been the best man. It took some negotiating to persuade the bride and groom to airbrush his face out. Even after that, Defoe wasn't happy. He knew there were many more pictures bearing his image. They didn't even know about. After researching his options, Defoe heard a story about a woman living on Jennifer's 10th floor. Her name was Hetty. Not expecting a great deal, Defoe made an appointment. Hello, he said as Hetty opened the door. Defo Trezor, she greeted. Instinctively, Defo covered his face and peeped through his fingers. I didn't tell you my name, he said. How did you know? Your voice, of course, unmistakable. Hetty proceeded to deliver an interesting rendition of one of Defo's songs. Defo stood in polite silence. Sorry, she said. I'm a big fan. Realising Defo was still speechless, she added, Don't worry, your secret's safe with me. Thanks, he said. I appreciate it. So what can I do for you? Well, I'm trying to track down every single photograph that's ever been taken of me. I'm hoping you'll be able to help. Sure, said Hetty. She led him into the apartment, through the kitchen and into a darkened corner. She directed him towards a door marked Archived Lives. This happened to be the title of the Susan Killer's second album. You name the room after our record, said Defoe. I'd like to say yes, said Hetty, but I thought of it way before you did. Oh, right. Out of interest, she said. How did you come up with the name Archive Lives? Well, I quite like the idea of walking into a room in which the details of your life are documented in the finest detail and stored for posterity. It's a metaphor for something, I think. Funny you should say that, said Hetty. Why? She gestured towards the door. Go ahead. Defo gently pushed the door open to reveal a small room containing several six-foot stacks of old-fashioned photo albums. For a moment or so, Defo was unsure as to whether he was willing to open one. Giving in to his curiosity, he grabbed an album opening a page at random. Inside was a picture of a man and woman standing at the gateway to a flashy building in the clean city known as the Strawberry. They were smiling. Defoe guessed correctly that the couple were tourists. Who are these people? he said. The question is, said Hetty, who's that standing behind them? Defoe looked twice, then a third time. Slowly, it dawned on him that he was staring at the back of his own head. Where did you get this, he said. Hetty shrugged. You wanted every single picture that's ever been taken of you, she said. Here they are. Well, how does it work? Where did you get them? Dunno, she said. The room's different for everyone. Whoever walks in sees a different set of pictures. She peered through the door at the stack of photo albums, looking them up and down with a curious distaste. I've never really been one for photographs, she said. I haven't even bothered looking at half of mine. Boring, really. She turned towards the door. Fancy a cup of tea? I'm fine, thanks, said Defoe. 
I'll leave you to it then, said Hefty. Defo turned a page. A school photo. 450 kids standing in a field. Erasing this one from the planet would be an embarrassing task. Contacting his old classmates one by one and politely requesting that they recycle their old memories seemed too much of an extreme measure. There must have been at least 500 copies of this picture printed and most of them would still be lurking in dusty drawers. Harmless enough, but that wasn't the point. He turned the page again. Another tourist shot. As he flicked his way through, it appeared that most of the pictures had been taken unintentionally by strangers. Some contained just a hand or a shoulder. Some tourists had managed to capture Defo and his ex-girlfriend kissing. Bizarrely, in the background of one picture, Defo was halfway through a cartwheel. He had no memory of ever having performed a cartwheel in his life, but the evidence was there. As he dug deeper, Defo discovered more pictures of himself and his ex-girlfriend. They were taken through a crack in his curtains. For some reason, Defo found this extremely amusing. Hetty returned to find him sitting cross-legged on the floor, chuckling. Everything okay, she said. Defo was laughing too hard to respond. It's a common reaction, she said. Certainly gives you a sense of your own insignificance, he said. So many millions of people out there. Most of them have probably got thousands more photographs of themselves than I do. Billions and billions of images. Why am I so intent on tracking mine down and destroying them? Even the dodgy through-the-curtain shots can remain, as far as I'm concerned. Tears rolled down his chuckling cheeks. It's okay, said Hetty. I'm curious, said Defo, wiping his face on his shirt. You didn't tell me how this thing works. Nothing to do with me, said Hetty. I should have warned you, really. This place can bring joy and devastation. Some people are driven to murder or suicide. I don't think the room means any harm. It's just trying to be kind. So you're saying the room's alive, said Defo. Everything's alive, said Hetty. Defo stared at the wall as he digested this statement. Oh, right, he said. A short time later, for whatever reason, Defo Trezor disappeared. It had been almost 12 years since the Susan Killers formed. Very few people had seen him in the first place, but those who knew him didn't have a clue as to his whereabouts. His family were keen to create some missing posters, but first they'd need a photograph. No one could track one down. Even his bandmates had sworn never to take his picture. Nonetheless, a number of fans claimed to have spotted him in various unlikely locations. When asked how they knew it was Defo, they'd reply that the face they'd seen corresponded exactly with the picture in their mind that emerged when listening to his music. Interestingly, the man these people had spotted wasn't actually Defo, but could have easily been his twin. There are a couple of pervasive stories about what really happened to Defo. The first is that he'd lost all of his money in foolish investments. When the economy collapsed, his fortune went with it. The next thing to disappear was Defo's creativity. 
He woke up one morning knowing he'd never write another song. He was destined to recoup his losses by touring the Susan Killer's greatest hits, his popularity waning year on year. He couldn't bear the thought. But what else could he do? He read a blog post about the rise of musical tribute acts. It was claimed that in many cases, the impersonators made more money than the artists themselves. Defoe would have been happy to perform every single night. Playing a gig while trapped inside a box felt almost like a rehearsal, but the rabble of voices wailing out his carefully crafted words was like nothing else on earth. Defoe placed an online request for bandmates. He conducted the auditions from the inside of a wardrobe. Don't I get to meet you face to face? A potential bassist inquired. Authenticity is the key to our success, replied Defoe's voice. This is serious, serious, serious business. It wasn't long before Defoe's tribute act, the Cousin Sillers, played their first set in the back room of a bar. Defoe crouched inside a locked wheelie bin. Word of mouth began to spread even before they'd finished their opening song. Fans flocked in from the street. When they ran out of floor space, newcomers listened in through the windows. No one had heard a vocalist imitate Defo so accurately. Many people considered this new vocalist, who named himself Tefo Drazor, to be superior to the man he was impersonating. As Defo had half hoped and half dreaded, the Coos and Sillers became a worldwide success. They even released an album recreating the Susan Killer's archived lives album, Note for Note. The album sold more copies than the original. After seven successful years, Defo felt it was time to retire. The band's farewell concert took place in a specially cleared area of the concrete wasteland surrounding his former home. Defo performed from inside a coffin. It was rumoured that he chose to spend his life inside that very same coffin, having food and drink passed to him through a hatch. Even the staff he'd hired to cook for him weren't allowed to see his face. Or maybe that was someone else. There was another fable about the fate of Defo Trezor often exchanged by die-hard fans as a means of easing their heartbreak over their idol's disappearance. Defo had become famous at an early age. He'd never had a job other than as a musician. His college friends all went off to university and worked part-time, many as bar and waiting staff. A part of Defo envied them immensely. He was particularly attracted to the idea of being a waiter. As far as Defo was concerned, waiters were as highly skilled as musicians. Musicians memorise songs. Waiters memorise menus. Both had the challenge of connecting to an often hostile audience. More than anything, it was the anonymity of waiters that really attracted him. In his view, a good waiter should be entirely forgettable, almost invisible. The day after he officially disappeared, Defo booked an appointment with a careers advisor. The advisor asked him what experience he had. He said he'd been in a band. What kind of band, said the advisor. Can't tell you, said Defo, but just so you know, I was in the same job for 12 years. 
Excellent. Staying power is an attractive quality. Have you worked in any other field besides music? Nope, said Defo. So, are you hoping to continue your career in the music industry? I want to be a waiter, said Defo. The advisor examined Defo's expression carefully. Well, he said slowly, let's see what's available. You don't look too hopeful, said Defo. The only drawback is your lack of experience, said the advisor. Most restaurant managers want a person who knows how to do the job. I could do the job better than half the waiters in the business, Defo snapped. You see so many of these clowns just going through the motions, no enthusiasm, no passion, in it for the money. I don't care about all that. I just want to get out there and do it, man. Just one tip, said the advisor. Don't say that in the interview. Defo took a deep breath and exhaled painfully. So what shall I say, he said. Let's take a look at the vacancies first, shall we? The advisor rattled through a series of mouse clicks. Just taking a quick, uh, okay, experience essential. Let's try the next one. Click. Experience essential again. Okay. Click. Experience essential. Click. Experience essential. Click. Experience essential. Click. And that's it. I'm sorry, Mr. Drazor. What are you saying? That's all the vacancies for now. You can keep checking online. Are they all going to say experience essential? Pretty much. For several days, Defo wandered the streets of the dirty city, looking for restaurants with signs in the window saying staff required. In a bar, he was treated to a drink by the manager, who declined his request for an interview, but felt moved to offer some advice. This isn't what you want to hear, said the manager kindly, but look around you. People are fleeing the city in search of a better life. Buildings are standing derelict. Restaurants are closing on an hourly basis. Every youngster in the city wants to be a waiter, but the fact of the matter is there just isn't enough space. I'm not giving up, said Defo. I admire your spirit. Give me a job then. I experience essential, I'm afraid. Oh. Eventually, Defo landed an interview at one of the more upmarket fast food chains. Sitting among the queue of candidates was Billy D, his former lead guitarist, one of the few people in the city who'd recognise his face. Hey, said Defo, sitting down beside him. Defo, he blurted. Shh, said Defo softly. My name's Tefo, okay? Sorry, said Billy. Should have known. It's good to see you. Same to you, man, said Defo. What are you doing here? You had a new band. Potato heads, is it? Potato head, actually, singular. What happened? I quit. Same as you. Music's a dead end. I need to follow my heart. Do what I should have done years ago. Defo glanced back and forth at the cluster of smart, casual hopefuls waiting for their five-minute conversation with the shift supervisor. You know what's sad, he said. I've always fantasised about this. I used to practice in front of the mirror with a frisbee instead of a tray. Sir? Madam? Sir? Madam? It's not sad, said Billy. Defo got to his feet. You know what, he said. 
We need to stop dreaming. How do you feel about joining me? Joining you where, said Billy. Let's form a band. Really? Why not? I can't face it, Defo. The idea of banging out the same chords night after night, rattling through the same old riffs. If I have to hear you shout, let me hear you make some noise one more time. Yeah, I always hated that one. So why do you want to go back? Defo shrugged. Maybe it's all we're good for. Suppose so. Should we get out of here? All right. They stepped into the car park, breathing a new kind of air. Should we go for a drink, said Defo. Call it a celebration. Sure, said Billy. Later on though, yeah? I've got to buy my guitar back from the pawn shop. I'll come with you actually, said Defo. Why, said Billy. Defo's eyes meandered for a while as he contemplated the statement that followed. I need to buy back my box. Thank you for listening. Once again, download the full audiobook from Bandcamp. Buy the book from Amazon. Not just one copy. Buy one for everyone you've ever met. Stand out on the street corner, handing them out. Do all my marketing for me. I do what I can, but you know, not really a marketing genius, sadly. Details, once again, at frankburton.co.uk. See you all very soon. Regular rag bag again next week. Some more bonus bags on the way. Podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow Britpod Scene on Twitter to find out more. Oh.